Pulavinaka, this is Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific. I'm Elisha Foon. Coming up, Fiji hosts New Zealand's Foreign Minister Winston Peters for his first overseas engagement for a 24-hour visit. Also, Pacific countries, you know, don't look at us to try and reduce carbon emissions because our emissions are just a drop in the bucket. They're not going to make a difference. We speak with Cook Island's Prime Minister Mark Brown about COP28 and later... The recovery continues on Vanuatu's Pentecost Island, which was thrashed by Cyclone Lola. Fiji is hosting New Zealand's Foreign Minister Winston Peters for a 24-hour visit on his first overseas engagement. Peters will meet with Fijian Prime Minister Siti Rambuka and the Pacific Islands Forum Secretary-General Henry Punna. I spoke with Kuroi Hawkins, who was in Suva for the visit. The first official bilateral of the coalition government um, since forming. So uh, Winston Peters obviously getting quickly out in the Pacific here. In their brief remarks just before going into the bilateral meeting that's underway, um, Winston Peters said it was important for them to come out to Fiji first as one of the central Pacific islands, meet with the Pacific Islands Forum, obviously. Um, Sitiveni Rambuka, um, uh, uh, thanked him for coming out and, and welcomed him to Fiji and, and also extended an invitation for him to also make an effort to visit other Pacific Island countries. So we're looking at uh, climate change, uh, economics, development, security, uh, the likely um, things on the agenda. On the Fijian side, I saw the uh, PS for Trade, uh, PS for Works, and uh, for Winston Peters delegation, it's an all-government delegation, so his people from his staff and also the um, High Common NPAT staff as well from here in Fiji. How important is this meeting off the back of the Pacific Islands Forum? I think it's it's really important given that, that the government um, uh, coalition hadn't formed at that time. Um, the New Zealand was represented by the outgoing Deputy Prime Minister Carmel Cipollone and Jerry Brownlee from the National Party was there. But there was it was pretty much this coalition government was absent from that meeting. So I think it's it's really important. And uh, based on what Winston said coming in, he, he thought it was really important to get out here before Christmas and meet with uh, Fiji and meet with Henry Puna from the forum and, and get that regional agenda um, going for the coalition government. Again, uh, restating it, the importance uh, of the Pacific is expounded in that this is the first bilateral meeting of the coalition government. Fiji's Deputy Prime Minister is pushing for visa-free travel across the Pacific. Could this be on the meeting agenda and what else are we expecting? I think immigration will be discussed. I'm not sure, based on what's come out of the forum and based on previous uh, New Zealand government engagements with the Pacific, I doubt whether that will be on the table. They will most likely be discussing labour mobility, which has been a big topic for these kind of meetings with uh, yeah. between New Zealand and uh, Pacific Island countries. But obviously there'll be a press conference after, so I'll be attending that and hopefully have uh, a full report on the outcomes of the meeting for uh, next week and the, and the next episode of the show. Thank you, Kuroi, and safe travels. The Cook Islands Prime Minister Mark Brown says he's pleased almost half a billion dollars is going to the Loss and Damages Fund during COP28. The COP28 climate conference ended Wednesday with an agreement to transition away from fossil fuels. Tiana Haxton spoke with Prime Minister Mark Brown in Rarotonga. This one was pretty good. I was at the high-level event, which is the first uh, three or four days, uh, and there was some uh, very good success with the Loss and Damage Fund. Uh, and Loss and Damage has been on... Uh, 
debate for the COP uh, agenda for decades, literally. So to have it uh, as one of the front and centre uh, agenda items and to, to see close to half a billion dollars committed towards COP uh, to the loss and damage fund is, I think, a very good outcome. Uh, for us in the Pacific, the Pacific Resilience Facility really is um, the one that we were looking for promoting. Um, and, of course, at our Leaders Forum, the announcement by the Saudis of $50 million towards it was gratefully received. Uh, and, of course, just uh, last week, Australia committed its $100 million towards the Pacific Resilience Facility. So this is a facility for our Pacific Island countries, and I think being at COP to promote this particular facility was a, a success for us because with Australia now putting that amount of money, there will be other countries that are keen to support the Pacific countries, uh, and this ready-made financing vehicle uh, that we've developed is now available for them to put their funding into it to help the Pacific meet its uh, resilience-building targets. And do you feel that the COP28 agreement goes far enough? Mm, I haven't really got uh, the feedback from the team yet, other than snippets I've been seeing in the media, but I'll get, a, I'll get a bit of a chat, an update from them uh, during the week, next week, on uh, what the final agreements were. But I know it was tough going in the, in the negotiations. And um, do you think the outcome is going to be sufficient um, with keeping the global warming below 1.5 degrees? No, I don't think so. I think the, um, the G20 countries who you know, uh, contribute 80% of carbon emissions, that's really where the hard work needs to be done to try and meet uh, the 1.5 degree target. Pacific countries, you know, don't look at us to try and reduce carbon emissions because our emissions are just a drop in the bucket. They're not going to make a difference. The focus needs to be on G20, uh, those countries, um, and find ways to shift them to renewable energy. A Christchurch startup wants to bring steam power to the Pacific Islands to help cacao farmers dry their beans. Macwell & Co has reimagined the old steam engine into what they see as the cutting edge of low-tech. Organic matter that would otherwise be thrown out in the islands can now be turned into clean energy. Caleb Fotheringham reports. It's generally thought of as a technology of the past, advanced maybe 300 years ago. But Christchurch startup Macwell & Co believes steam power has a role in moving the world away from fossil fuels. We are developing tools to empower energy sovereignty. And we're doing that by rein, re, reinventing, rediscovering the steam engine. Unlike traditional steam engines that have a reputation for being dirty, Sam Macwell, chief engineer and director of the company, says the burning process is clean. What we've developed is a, a combustion system that eliminates the smoke and particulate emissions. And when you eliminate that, you eliminate all of that dirt that would cover everything in, in the vicinity of a, of a steam locomotive depot. The engine uses organic biomass like wood chips as fuel, allowing farms to become energy independent. Mr Macwell says trees are nature's solar panels and batteries all in one. A farm only needs to set aside about 2% of its land area to grow enough fuel to run this technology indefinitely, so continuously forever, basically. The company is looking to work in the Pacific to assist cacao growers dry out their beans, which can quickly turn mouldy. Growers revert to drying cacao through fires if they can't rely on sunny weather, but smoke can bring down the price. 
Keith Budd with Grow Asia Pacific says this year Samoa cacao farmers lost about 30% of their product through the drying process. There are occasions, of course, when the rain comes in and and uh, if that happens for a number of days, the beans will get spoiled. And, uh, of course, that's a loss of production and loss of income for the farmers. Mr Budd says the engine also allows Pacific communities to dispose of organic waste. A lot of these countries don't have the ability to get rid of rubbish. They don't have a rubbish refuse collection or anything like that. And um, this provides another opp- opportunity to get rid of some of that. It's what Macwell call the cutting edge of low tech. What would be thrown out can now be used as fuel. The really only viable solution they have right now is using natural gas, uh, LPG. But that's far too expensive in the islands and kind of contributes to the problem of climate change as well. Business development lead William Bowden says the steam engine can also create electricity and clean water. That coupled with the low-tech nature makes it a good fit for remote communities. We've eliminated as best as we can uh, electrical components and other sort of common fail areas that fail on more high-tech equipment. And so the idea being that any regional uh, workshop in small towns in New Zealand or in the Pacific could fix and uh, repair this technology. The company hopes to get the engine into the Pacific late next year. The long-awaited reopening of the Bagheera gold mine in Papua New Guinea's Inga province is set to happen next week. Nearly four years ago, after being beset by controversy, the mine shut as the parties negotiated a new lease deal. Now New Bogera Limited, in which the Papua New Guinea government and community interests have a majority share, is set to open on the 22nd of December, with the first gold expected in the first quarter next year. Massey University Professor of the School of People, the Environment and Planning, Glenn Banks, has had a long involvement in Bogera. Don Wiseman asked him what took him there. I was going there to, to study the relationship between the, this um, multi-million dollar foreign mining company and the, the local community. I must admit I went up there with a few preconceptions in the sense of thinking that this was the classic David versus Goliath kind of encounter. But once I got on the ground up there, I found it was a lot messier. That There was a, a, a lot of local politics and a a lot of local agency, I guess you could say, that was putting a lot of pressure on the mining company. They they didn't really know how to best deliver and live with that local community. There was a lot of uh, really good people on the the company side with backgrounds in, in development and a lot of people with who had worked for the government up in PNG previously worked up in the highlands who were trying to manage that relationship with the local community. So they were they they had at the time some pretty world leading compensation and um, relocation agreements that had been negotiated with the local community. Funnily enough, it had come out of the original development forum that, that Papua New Guinea had held, which brought together the company, the provincial government and the national government with the landowners to negotiate the the terms of the the mine development. And so from that, you had some pretty cutting edge agreements between the the various levels of government and the local community about what the government would deliver in terms of development for the community. So there was this messiness that you refer to, but what was it like generally? We know, for instance, that with time, it became a fairly violent place, the Bogera town and around 
the mine. But what was it like back there at the beginning? It was actually a, a really nice place to do field work as a student. And I never felt threatened or in, in any form of danger up there while I was I was working up there. There was a lot of hope in the community. And there was starting to be a little bit of frustration that people weren't seeing the, the sort of development that they thought they should be getting, that they were anticipating. But they were very proud of things like the the new township at Pyam that was starting to to be developed, the new hospital that had been put in place. So, you know, there were visible markets of progress up there. And people in the the early 90s were were really quite hopeful that this was going to be the start of a a real process of development. It's um, not the case that there wasn't any violence. There was still tribal fighting going on. I somewhat naively wandered into a couple of fight zones at, at different points in time, but they were never encounters where I felt at risk. It was very much low-key, much more traditional-style tribal fighting that was occurring. And there were no, at the time in the early 90s, there were no high-powered rifles or um, assault assault weapons being employed. It was homemade shotguns, and but mostly bow and arrow. So the wounds at the hospital tended to be bow and arrow and spear wounds rather than gunshot wounds. Then you you continued going there over a period of years. And what did you see? Yeah, you started to see a, a, a few things. One, massive amounts of migration from people who had kinship relationships into Pogra. So the, the vast bulk of the migration into Pogra, at least in the, for the first couple of decades, was along kinship lines. So it was people from what was then Southern Highlands Province, now Hala Province, and other parts of Inga that were moving into Pogra. The traditional landowning communities there were were from the Apili language group, and, and the Apili were a small, traditionally a small, fairly peripheral group surrounded by much larger neighbours. And so through marriage and through trade and exchange, they actively sought out connections with these larger groups. Once the mines started up, you started to see migration of these larger groups, the Huli and um, other parts of Inga, into the Pogra Valley to try and take advantage of some of the, the opportunities that were coming up in terms of the significant cash flows, employment, business development. And so... Within 10 years, you effectively had a doubling of the population in the in the Pogra Valley. It went from about 10,000 at the start of in, in 1990, just as the mine was kicking off, up to 22,000 by the year 2000. So a, a really significant increase in, in population at that time. And that population growth has just continued. I mean, I've, I've seen the most recent number attached to the population of Pogra in the valley of about 70,000. That kind of population growth puts real pressure and inserts real stress into that community. And when you've got a lot of money and a lot of the migrants initially are young guys looking for opportunities, you start to see drinking, gambling, prostitution, and that tends to amplify aspects of of traditional culture, if you like. So you you start to see much more violent forms of conflict that arise up there. Some of the the tribal fighting that's that's occurred over the last 10 years or so has been pretty, pretty horrendous. At the same time, you're starting to see a much more vexed relationship between the community, the the landowners, and, and the company. The landowners really, they're unable to control a lot of the social processes and the the violence that's occurring in the community. And they're they're 
looking to the government and to the company to try and help them resolve some of these things, but there's not very much either of those parties can do. The response from the state has been to send in troops and police, and that's led to human rights abuses. So there was a period about 10 years ago when there were a significant number of human rights abuses reported and recorded by international organisations. Human Rights Watch went in there and and uncovered a, a significant amount of abuse by mine security and police in and around the the mine area. And again, that kind of environment, it just amplifies some of the already existing tensions in the in the community. That is part one of our look at Bogera. At a later stage we'll hear from Professor Glenn Banks on the prospects for the new operation. Vanuatu's Pentecost Island was one of the hardest hit and is still in a state of recovery after being lashed by three cyclones. This week, Pentecost received a donation drive of fresh food, a relief for many who have lived off canned food for many months. Fino Fonua spoke with RNZ Pacific correspondent Ilia Bule, who was in Port Vila. We're hearing reports that Pentecost Island is still in need of aid. Could you give us an update on the humanitarian situation over there? The, the assistance given by the uh, National Disaster Management Office, they are currently distributing uh, ration uh, on the island. The, the assistance from the government uh, left uh, Port Vila about uh, one week ago, and now the distribution is currently underway on the island. But uh, after, just after one week after the uh, cyclone uh, hit uh, the island, the, uh, people received the, mainly the uh, the uh, for example, fresh uh, food from uh, the island of Santo, and also the NGO who send uh, who send uh, the, the uh, not the the non item, uh, but uh, the the the, the ration to the island. But they, we have also, I mean, respective family who are uh, resided in a villa and uh, Luganville. They send they also send uh, uh, like uh, rice to their own family on the island. And we've heard that the mosquito population on Pentecost Island has exploded, and that. There's so many mosquitoes, people, uh, villages are actually burning fires throughout the entire day and nights just to ward them off. Yes, they, 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 they have been reported that uh, mosquitoes are invading uh, the island. We don't know the reason, but mainly because uh, the, the, the eastern part of Pentecost, uh, we, 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 have, we have so many rivers. From your observation, what are the main concerns for Vanuatu at this moment? What are the main issues that government needs to address? Well, uh, the school buildings and also the health center, they haven't uh, repaired them yet. Uh, since uh, Cyclone Harold, the island of Pendigos was destroyed by the Cyclone Harold, and now they have erected some uh, temporary uh, houses like uh, schools, uh, schools building uh, constructed with local material but when Lola Khan destroyed destroyed them again so uh, they, they, they they're starting up to zero and that men worry now because uh, we uh, we, we are now in, in, in the cyclone season and the, the, the cyclone Lola was was a hit because outside cyclone season but now we don't know that there, there are other cyclones during the cyclone season it will be another, another problem are people scared that there will be another cyclone? Well, um, we have received, received uh, Category 5 uh, cyclones, and uh, people are now getting uh, use of facing uh, Category 5 cyclones.
that's specific waves for today. To listen back, head over to rnzi.com slash programs. We're also on Apple, Spotify, and iHeartRadio podcasts. From myself and the RNZ Pacific team, tofa soi for.